God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Thanks, Stephen, for uh, including that hymn in the service. Such incredibly rich words, and as I think of this chapter, Genesis 38, um, that phrase I just quoted from the hymn is crucial, uh, because I think often uh, we've sought to interpret uh, this text in our own ways and uh, not let God be the interpreter. Uh, we've jumped to conclusions before we got to the end of the chapter uh, and not understood what God is saying. Uh, I am, again, this morning, because it's a long uh, text, rather than reading the whole thing at the beginning, just going to walk us through the text so it will be helpful for you to have the Scripture open. Uh, let me lead us in prayer before we open God's Word. Father, you are great beyond our imagination. We need your word and your spirit to make your way clear. We cry out to you together. Uh, give us wisdom as you move us along the pathway of being transformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit of God, do that work even this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I had a student at Westminster Theological Seminary's uh, Dallas campus, the Philadelphia Westminster, uh, named uh, Valerius Petrini. He went by Bill because a lot of people just didn't like calling him Valerius had an amazing upbringing in a very poor single-parent family, as just his mother and several siblings. Uh, in the Ceausescu regime of oppressive Romania, uh, so poor that his mother would literally take all of their clothes every night and put them uh, into sheets to make mattresses so that they could sleep with some comfort and then get them up early the next morning, take the clothes out uh, in whatever way she could, press the clothes so that the kids could wear the clothes to school. And that would be repeated every night. But the most amazing thing she did was at risk of her ability to mother and keep her children, she taught her children the scriptures when it was illegal and just loved to read them the scriptures. And one of the passages that Bill said he remembered so much growing up was this section of Genesis that is so often called the Joseph story. But it wasn't until an adult that he was an adult and began to read the word on his own that he realized there was a Genesis 38 between Genesis 37 and 39 because his mother would skip the story of Judah and Tamar uh, not knowing quite how to teach it uh, to her children. If there was ever a text where we need God to explain his word uh, and what he's doing in it, uh, this is one, though I think if one puts it in its complete section, that uh, we will find very clear understanding of some very important things. Uh, I would say to you, and it's always true, uh, when in doubt, read the text. 
because I'm amazed as uh, I've gone back and read scores of pages of commentaries again uh, in prepping for this morning, uh, uh, that sometimes we get the narrative as it's been told by other commentators in our head, and we don't go back and just read, what does the text say? Uh, how much am I presuming, and, and how does God's divine interpreter, the Spirit of God who led Moses to write this down the way that he write it down, help us understand exactly what is going on. And it's very important, as I said a few weeks ago when we dug into Genesis 37, to get out of our Western individualistic mindset and understand the more corporate family covenantal context of the Old Testament, that uh, the patriarchs uh, are patriarchs. They are fathers not just over what we think of a father in a small nuclear family, but the whole clan that develops around that, they have a responsibility. And when they deal with who they pass on their inheritance to, uh, that is part of the responsibility. And if you were here a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 37, you saw that one of the significant things about Joseph's uh, amazing dreams uh, is that he's not very sensitive of, in communicating to his brothers that if you're really going to bow down to me and if I'm going to be the new father when Jacob dies because I'm the one that gets all the control, what am I going to be like towards you as the younger brother who's now your older, older brother and in charge of the clan? And a lot of the tension in the family was because of those kinds of family realities that we tend not to think about. Some of them still exist uh, in some of our subcultures, but it's very different in other ways. So the first section of our text, I want you to look at uh, in, in this way. We uh, have put a title on the message, I have put a title on, uh, of moving towards or moving away from God's always active providence. And because his providence is somewhat mysterious, as the hymn tells us, uh, let me explain that just a little bit by saying that we cooperate God when we move towards God's covenant and God's covenant responsibilities. And so part of cooperating with God in his providence is we know that he's working towards his promises. And he had made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so we can ask, how are Jacob's sons doing in cooperating with the promises? How is Jacob himself doing in cooperating with those promises? So first I want you to note that Genesis 38 is all about Jacob moving, or Judah rather, Judah moving away from God's provident proddings and covenant promises and responsibilities. Uh, Judah was involved in getting Joseph sold off to the Midianites, uh, we'll give him a little bit of a break and say that he was trying to keep some of his other brothers from going ahead and, and killing uh, Joseph. So there perhaps was some good motive in what he did, uh, but it was a terrible time creating terrible rifts amongst the brothers in Jacob's family. And now we read in Genesis 38, verse 1, it happened at that time, the time when Joseph was sold off and heading towards Egypt, that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Dolomite whose name was Hira. 
Judah goes down from his brothers. It's, it's true both geographically because uh, Jacob and the family were in Hebron, which south of Jerusalem is one of the highest parts on the ridge that runs through the central part of Israel. So when he went down to the foothills, the Shephelah, uh, he was going down in that sense. But the phrase tends to communicate in Genesis more than that. Uh, it's a going away from the path. And he turns aside to a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. He goes to live amongst the Canaanites. Not a healthy covenantal move. So he's leaving his brothers. And verse 2, Then Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. Uh, the language of Hebrew narrative is always very sparse, very few words. Uh, and when you see verbs like he saw and he took, uh, your mind ought to be going back, your ears ought to be going back uh, to Eve in the garden. She saw, and it looked good, and she took. I think we can put that over onto this text. That Judah saw this Canaanite woman, she looked good, and he took her as his wife and went into her. And this first paragraph is all about births. Remember that, because when we get to the last paragraph of the chapter, we'll be talking all about births. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. And remember, we're in a section of Genesis that is these are the generations of Jacob. So now we have the generations of Jacob flowing through Judah and a Canaanite woman, and we have Ur and Onan and Shelah that are the first sons born to him. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him, and Judah took a wife for Ur his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. That name comes up again in the scripture. Uh, in Hebrew, the, the word means uh, date palm or palm tree. Uh, it's associated with uh, an image that is beautiful. Uh, we remember uh, David's son Absalom who uh, took his sister Tamar, who was a beautiful woman. And then he was so caught up with Tamar, even with the chaos it caused in, caused in David's family, that uh, he named one of his own daughters Tamar. So it's an interesting name in the way that it flows out in Israelite history. So he takes Tamar, probably another beautiful Canaanite woman, for his son. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Howard Hendricks, one of my favorite Bible teachers years ago, has said that we ought never to be ashamed to discuss what God was not ashamed to create. Uh, and that the church often has had trouble with dealing with sexuality. But I want to say to you that, that this chapter is not really about sexuality so much as it's about family. And if you don't understand the culture of what's happening, uh, think uh, most of you probably know the story of the book 
uh, of Ruth better than you know the story of Judah and Tamar. And there you have this uh, redeemer kinsman, which is part of the Leveret uh, marriage. Lever in Latin is brother-in-law. It's this reality that if uh, a brother dies and there are no children, the next brother or another brother in the family, and sometimes it extends beyond that. And in the Hittite culture, which was prominent in that day, it could also be the father-in-law of the woman. So we don't know exactly what is going on in here, but before you get caught up with 20th and 21st century uh, values, as if we really have many nowadays, uh, you need to listen to the text in its own context. The text dismisses Ur quickly. You wonder like, whoa, what did he do? He's gone. But when we get to Onan, we find out what the text is focusing on. Onan is practicing a form of husbandry which doesn't allow his wife to get pregnant. And in doing so, he's violating the covenant responsibilities that God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob that their numbers would be like the stars of the heaven. He's going against the very demand, and God tells us in the text that the reason he's doing it is that if Ur is the firstborn, the likelihood is that Ur was going to get the two-third inheritance and be the next father when Judah died. And he realizes, if I have this child, this child is not part of my family, if I have it through Tamar. It's Ur's son, even though Ur is dead, and he's going to get the bigger inheritance, so I don't like this. So we've got a disobedient Judah running away from the family. And now we've got disobedient sons running away from the family and running away from the covenant. I hope that you're beginning to see that Judah's responsibility uh, is only a step below that of his patriarch father. One principle I want you to think about as we walk through these next chapters, uh, including this one in Genesis, is that circumstances don't determine our character, but they often reveal it. Circumstances don't determine our character, but they often reveal it. And, and God's providence is in charge of all circumstances. He is absolutely sovereign. And so Judah is in this circumstance where Ur has died, and now Onah has, has died, and he's got Sheila left. So we come to verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up. Now on the face of it, that's reasonable. Sheila was the youngest son. We don't know the exact age at that point. But he's saying, when Sheila's just a little bit older, I will give him to you, Tamar. I will give you to him. Uh, and he will father a child uh, for her uh, on your behalf. But that's not all the text says. It says that Judah, for he feared that he would die, Sheila, like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in his father's house. Judah is called to trust in the God of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But instead he's become superstitious. I got this Canaanite woman, I gave her to Ur, and God killed him. I gave him to Onan, and God killed him. I don't want to give, him, give her to Shelah. God's going to kill him too. Now, that's really good biblical theology, isn't it? 
But that's the way our minds work when we run away from God. We become superstitious. We come to ways of looking uh, at how we think God is going to work, and we live in fear. And so he takes another step away from cooperating with God's plan, God's covenant, God's providence, and he lies to Tamar and shames her, her family, and his own, given that he still has a marriageable son, Sheila. He's got a covenant responsibility, but he's backing away from it. Now, a fascinating thing as we move into the second section of the text is that Judah continues to move away from the covenant, but guess who's moving towards the covenant? Tamar. She, like Ruth, has married into the covenant by marrying into Judah's family with her. She's a Canaanite, but she wants to be a part of this family. And so she's the one that in the text we find out is being faithful. And it's the family she joined when Judah chose her as wife of his firstborn, Ur. So let's look at verses 12 and following. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, the Canaanite wife, died. So a number of years have gone by. When Judah was comforted, there was a period of mourning that was to take place, different in every culture. But when he passed that through, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend, Hira the Adullamite. We've got his Canaanite buddy, uh, that's his friend, helping him walk away from the covenant. And then he goes back to normal activities. Verse 13, And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. There's an interesting play on words here. Uh, quick aside, uh, someone is keeping Tamar informed on what's happening. She's got an interest. When is she going to get Sheila? When is she going to be given to Sheila? It's not happening. And someone inside the family communicates to her what's happened. And now realizing that uh, Judah is not keeping his word, not keeping his promise, that he's going up to the sheep shearing, uh, she comes up with a plan. But it's important to read what the text tells us and not tells us. But Judah uh, is the blind one here. The word in Nahum means eyes. And it's Tamar who has the eyes to see what's really going on and to see Judah's deceit. Uh, Judah is so blind to who he's supposed to be and to his covenant responsibilities that he goes up to the sheep shearing, and no doubt it's a party time. Uh, it's like the harvest. Uh, they're drinking and celebrating. And when Judah, verse 15, saw her, there's that word saw again. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Who thinks she's a prostitute? Judah. It's in Judah's mind that she's a prostitute. She's covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. That's a straightforward approach. Uh, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. He could see, but she couldn't see. He's blinded by all of what's going on in his life. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? 
she knows he's a man who doesn't keep his word. And so she asks the leading question, what will you give me? And then the two of them begin to strike a deal for her services. Uh, And these are what the Bible often in Judah's mind uh, refers to as the earnings of the harlot. And all she seeks from him, note this, what is she really seeking from him? She's seeking from Judah the identity that she deserves to be a wife and a mother in the line of Jacob and Judah. That's what was promised her when she entered in the marriage covenant, and that's what she is seeking. And so to see what Judah will do, uh, she asks for his identity. She says, give me your signet uh, and your cord. And uh, often the signet, the seal, uh, that was like your your business card, your American Express card, or uh, your walkabout contract uh, was worn around the neck uh, on a cord. Sometimes it had a stamp on the bottom of it. Uh, Sometimes it was a, a roll, a tube that had the markings on the side, and when you rolled it uh, in uh, an ink-like thing or in soft clay, it would make the mark that would sign things. So she says, give me that and give me your staff. And in that period of the staff, his walking staff, anyone of any prominence, and Judah was a man of some prominence, uh, had a special head on that staff with the special carvings, and everybody in the community knew it was his. So she says, give me all your identity cards. Give me your driver's license, your uh, American Express card. And while you're at it, give me your passport. Very shrewd woman who is at a nime, and she can see. Because he says he's going to give her a goat. But she's thinking, can I trust him to go away and, and deliver the goat? Not very likely, given what he's like. Uh, Plus, that's not what she really wants. She doesn't want the wages of the harlot. She wants his identity. He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge till you send it, uh, what shall I give you? Your signet, your cord, your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and conceived by him. Whoa. Did you catch how much was said in a sentence? I've said to you, the language in Hebrew narrative is very collapsed, very few words. You've got to slow down and go, whoa, what's going on here? Look at uh, this incredible reality. Uh, What Tamar wants is what she is owed. She wants his identity. And this last sentence says, he gives her his identity markers. He gives her his identity And the very second part of that compound sentence says, and she conceived by him. If you read Genesis and the Torah, the first five books of the scripture and the other biblical narratives closely, uh, that phrase coming right after the other one tells you God is involved. I mean, it's not always that somebody gets pregnant in that kind of a moment. And there's a hidden providence uh, involved here that I think is, is being shown. Not only does he give her his identity, but he gives her his identity. He gives her his genetics. She gets the lineage that was promised to her uh, in the marriage ceremony that she had. Her key role in God's covenant plan will not be revealed until the chapters end and beyond. We have the benefit of the rest of the Bible. And if you don't know where this chapter ends, you'll have to wait just a few more minutes, not many. 
Uh, but if you do, you're already going, there's, seeing there's something a whole lot bigger going on in this chapter than anybody ever thought. And it's amazing that it gets left out sometimes in our teaching of the Scripture. Then she arose, verse 19, and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend Adullamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. Note that Judah didn't go himself. Maybe after the drink from the sheep shearing had worn off or maybe just coming to his senses, he realized, if I take this goat back there uh, myself, uh, people are going to ask, what are you doing? Who are you looking for? So he sends his Canaanite friend uh, to kind of keep the hush up, hush up on things uh, to hide from what he's done. But Hiram says, interesting, or Hira, that uh, uh, he's looking for a cult prostitute. The other word is just harlot or prostitute. This word is for the fertility cult uh, involved with Canaanite religion, male and female uh, prostitutes that were part of the worship and the fertility cults. We don't know whether that's really significant or not. But the text says, interestingly, in verse 21, no cult prostitute has been here. Uh, so he, verse 22, returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. Uh, I won't uh, stake uh, my ministerial credentials on this, but I think it's significant when twice in two verses, God has the scripture say, no cult prostitute was here. I think God is telling us, Tamar is not a prostitute. That's not what's going on here. This is not a morality tale. Uh, this is something much deeper about covenant promises and covenant responsibilities. Uh, verse 23, And Judah replied, Let her keep the, the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. In other words, I did everything I needed to do, and I'm not going to go up there and ask for where are my identities. You know, where's my staff? Where's my... Passport, where's all this stuff in the signet and the cord? Judah desires no further embarrassment in spreading further word of his actions. Third move we want to make as we move to the end. Move three, God's providence. And I'm borrowing a phrase from John Piper's wonderful 2020 book called Providence. God's providence is purposeful sovereignty. I love that phrase. God's providence is his purposeful sovereignty. We often don't know about it until after the fact. But his providence in working out through, beyond, behind what we do and what we choose, using both the evil and the good to accomplish his ultimate end, is his purposeful sovereignty. And he works fatherly blessings for all who love him and are called according to his purpose in Christ. Uh, so there are fatherly blessings for the covenant promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that are coming through this very strange to our ears story. Look at Genesis 38, uh, or look at Genesis 38, uh, 24. And three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. You see, she's still pledged to Sheila. She cannot marry anyone else. She can't get another husband. 
she can't be sexually active without sinning. So she's pregnant. Clearly she's been immoral because Judah hasn't uh, either allowed her to be free. And so Judah, nice guy that he is, uh, says, bring her out and let her be burned. Circumstances don't determine character, but they reveal it. Here we have Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, the head of the tribe of Judah, if we know the biblical story, asking for the harshest penalty against this daughter-in-law. And he still doesn't know that he was the father that got her pregnant. And that's what he does. Verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Remember what Joseph's, uh, or what uh, Jacob's son said to him when they brought Joseph's bloodied uh, by animal blood, uh, coat of many colors? They said to Joseph, or they said to Jacob, too many J words here. Uh, they said uh, to Jacob, uh, identify, please identify. It's the same exact phrase in the Hebrew. In the chapter later, we have Tamar saying uh, to Judah, please identify. Whose are these? Whose identity is this? Because the man to whom these belong, of him I am pregnant. Then Judah identified them and says these amazing words. She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against her. And in this whole incident, which is so strange to us, Judah says, I'm the sinner. She's the one who's more righteous. And this is the beginning of Judah's repentance. And keep it in mind, because as we move in Genesis 39 back to Joseph in Egypt and Potiphar and all that he goes through, uh, we're going to see the whole family of the brothers have to mature and have to begin to repent. This is not just about Jacob and Joseph. It's about Judah and it's about the others. And Judah did not know her again, verse 26, and when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. And after his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So we have Perez, the firstborn, and Zerah, the secondborn. Anybody remember another set of twins in Genesis? I think it's the only other one, Jacob and Esau. And we have this conflict, but this is a different kind of thing. There's not so much a conflict. It's just God reminding us that he's in charge and that he often takes that which is in one sense second and makes it first. Listen to these words from the Gospel of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Isn't that a fascinating final phrase? Bathsheba, we can see her as a sinner. We're all sinners. But when the king asks, the king gets what he wants. And so the scripture reminds us of Uriah in this. But the women that are involved in this first paragraph of the genealogy are utterly amazing. You have Tamar, you have Ruth, you have Rahab, you have Bathsheba, all used in God's providence in this remarkable way. And so here we have these twins that are now the lineage of King David and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is an amazing chapter about the providence of God. We often don't understand what is going on until we see the rest of the story. We don't know how the pieces work together. Uh, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Tamar is the one who, like Ruth, is moving into the covenant family. Tamar is the one who is like the Lord Jesus Christ, who risks her life to have that which was her due in the covenant line and almost got killed by her father-in-law. But in God's wisdom, he gave her the strategy that Judah had to identify that he owed her his identity through Sheila and didn't give it. Um, there's so much more I want to say, but I, I don't want to prolong. Uh, let me just make one practical example. Uh, I think I said it a few weeks ago. Uh, if you think you know what God is doing right now in your life, you're probably wrong. Uh, sometimes we've got part of it right, but we simply don't understand I thought of, uh, and I know there are many of you with crew for a lot of years, and some of you may have heard uh, the story, but I thought of Howard Hendricks uh, just a few months after this happened. He told us in a leadership training conference uh, about his father's coming to Christ. And he confessed what an unbeliever he had become, even though for decades, at every conference he spoke at almost, if it was appropriate, he would ask the people to pray for his father. And he had gotten to the place where he felt it was never going to happen. Why pray? I mean, how, how does it ever happen? There was no sign of anything or the people coming into his father's life that, uh, that could bring it about. 
And Howard told us that just a few months before, if I'm remembering it correctly, uh, he got a phone call from a pastor from New Jersey. And the pastor said, you don't know me, but I heard you ask us to pray for your father and uh, X number of years ago, and I've been praying for him every day or every week ever since. And I want you to know what happened. I took our church bus with a group from the church over into Philadelphia, and I turned a corner looking for a place to park the bus, and I looked on that corner, and there was a man standing on that corner, and I said to myself, my God, that has got to be Howard Hendricks' father. No two men have the same posture uh, that those two men have. And he said, I was so convicted, I went around the block, I found the place to park the bus, I ran around the block, he was still there at the corner, and I walked up and said, you're Howard Hendricks' father, aren't you? And Howard's dad looked at him like he was crazy, and thought he was even crazier when he told him the story I just told you. And a few minutes later, Howard Hendricks' father knelt on that Philadelphia street corner and received Jesus Christ. And Howard confessed his unbelief. His dad called him on the phone. And he tried to do the normal chit-chat he did with his father, and his father just brushed him off and said, there's something I need to tell you. His father was a military man, Howard said, uh, I learned nothing spiritually from him for the most part, but I learned discipline and a lot of great things from the military. And the words that came out of my father's mouth were, Son, I have a new commander-in-chief. And Howard realized instantly that his father would have never said those words if it was not the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got three kids that have all made professions. They're in different places. I'm sometimes like Howard Hendricks. Uh, when are the lights and the fires going to turn back on? I need this test. Some of you are in similar situations. These are troubling days. This is a season for UPC that you've never been through before. But can we believe that the providence of God, Romans 8, the wonderful hymns we've sung today, the words that live in our hearts, uh, that God's providence is just uh, beyond us and yet trustworthy. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Why? Because God is trustworthy. Missionaries taking great risks. Why? Because God is trustworthy. God does things with the small thing we do that is far bigger than things that people boast about and and sometimes nobody ever knows. But I want you to know I'm so glad that there are people like Tamar in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ who showed a faithfulness in the midst of the unfaithfulness of churchmen who wanted what was given to her and who knows how much in her lifetime she fully understood. But the scripture puts her in parallel to Ruth who was such a faithful one in walking away from her Moabite background and walking towards the covenant. So my challenge to you is though you don't know God's providence, in the, in the New Testament, uh, our responsibility for filling the earth uh, 
while family is still a very good thing, the scripture looks at it more broadly in the New Testament. But filling the earth with disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ and showing covenant faithfulness to those who are brothers and sisters in Christ and particularly in the local church where we are accountable is moving towards the covenant. And so this is a call to practical living and believing that God is at work in your community group, in your friendships, amongst the believers in your life. May God make us faithful and willing to take appropriate risks, get out of our comfort zone, uh, that the covenant might be strengthened in our presence. Let's pray. Father, your word amazes us. It surprises us. It puts us on our face before you to see how great you are. We honor you. We glory in your glory. And we pray in the glorious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.